All right. Hey, good morning. Good morning. I'm Dave, uh, welcoming our folks online uh, over in Roan County. Hey, good morning. Uh, down in Bearden, good morning. And in Ampt and Blend, a couple of venues here on Harrison Lane that are joining in as well. Good morning to y'all. Hey, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. All right. So ultimately, um, it's a day that we celebrate moms, but it's a day really where we're celebrating God's, God's creative work. In other words, God had a plan for people, and mothers are a vital part of that plan. And so all the moms out there, shout out to you. But as we get started, we're going to be talking uh, from Genesis still. We're in a series called Out of the Chaos, where we're working through uh, the the book of Genesis. Really, the first uh, 11 chapters is where we're going to go, 12, 13, 14, somewhere we'll finish up. So uh, something about me is, um, and I've shared this before, is that for a number of years, I I would have defined myself as a New Testament follower of Jesus. And here's what I meant by that. That's not something to, to be proud of for me because what, what I mean when I say that was I was a New Testament exclusive kind of, of follower. In other words, I, I read the New Testament, but I really didn't read the Old Testament because I'm like, so what? Who cares? It's really all about Jesus after all. And so if I ever read my Bible, my, my reading of my Bible was was rare at best, right? If I ever actually did read it, it was just something in the New Testament, likely something from the Gospels, something about Jesus, because that's all I need. And that was dead wrong. As I got to know God's story as as an entirety, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I was missing out on all of who God is. And so if you want to know why I'm fairly passionate about what I do, it's because of this. I'm fairly passionate that we, as followers of Jesus, would understand the entirety of God's story, but even more so that we would understand the Old Testament rightly. And, and here's what I mean by that. that, that for, because what I see in a, in a lot of evangelicalism is people viewing the Old Testament here and the New Testament here. Like they are two parallel accounts that sometimes people view as two different gods, that there's the God of the Old Testament, and then there's this God of the New Testament, and then there's Jesus, and we really like him, but I don't know about the God of the Old Testament and the God who would destroy stuff. I don't know about that. And so it's really important that we go, wait a minute, if it's all of God's story, how do we view it? And so instead of viewing it as a story in parallel, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is my new hand motion. You got to use it, okay? Here we go. Ready? I know I use hand motions a lot. We have to view God's story like this. We're viewing the Old Testament through the lens of the New When we read the scriptures like that, all of a sudden, stuff that doesn't make sense starts to make sense. And in particular, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we've talked about this already, that they make the rest of God's story, the rest of all the books of scripture make sense. Without them, they don't make sense. Without the the setting of the stage that happens in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, the the rest of the books of the Bible don't make sense. And so the first 11 chapters, we're going we're gonna to call the introduction to God's story. This is the introduction. You could call it the prologue. God is laying foundation. And as a follower of Christ today, there's some really essential concepts that we would buy into that, that matter day in, day out, how we live and how we think from the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. 
It's just not some, oh, hey, that's nice. Let's move on with life and talk about Jesus kind of book. No, no, we're foundational because this book is all about something, right? And what's that book all about? It's all about what the, the author of Genesis reveals to us about who God is. All of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, and in particular the book of Genesis, the driving question is, what does this reveal about God? What does this reveal about God? And I I hammer this. The reason I hammer this is so many of us want to jump to just a quick moral lesson of just help me this week. Just give me a nugget this week to be a better person this week, and that's enough. That's all I need. And and we're not going to get that from Genesis. In particular, this weekend, we're going to see Noah get drunk. The moral of the story is not don't get drunk. Okay, if you walk out of here and go, see, I told you we shouldn't get drunk. You missed it, man. It went way over your head. Has nothing to do with getting drunk. And yet, that's what we do. We just look at the story and go, okay, wait, how do I? No, that's not it. What's this telling me about who God is and how God interacts with with his world that he's made? What is God revealing to us about who he is? And so far in this series, and we're going to talk something, Two Rivers, okay? If Two Rivers is your church family, if you're visiting, hey, this is just for us, okay? I, I, I love you still, but here, here, this is for us. Two Rivers, we, we desire to be a word-dependent people. And that means we can't zoom in, zoom out each week, just go, just give me something this week. We have to retain. We have principles week in and week out that we would build upon them, that we would retain, not just go, oh, that was nice. No. So as we get to the end of a series that you would be like, okay, I actually learned something that I applied to my life that hopefully a year from now, I'm not the same person I was because I've been implementing these truths into my life by the power of the Holy Spirit in order that I would look more like Jesus. That's the process. And so in this series, so far we've seen that God is better than I think he is. If we just read the book of Genesis in isolation, all of a sudden it's like, man, I don't know who that God is. I don't want any part of him. Any God who would just destroy the world with a flood? I'm not sure I want about that. And then last week, Dave showed us that, that if, if God is better than who we think he is, that, that even God's judgment is better than I think it is. That somehow, in the midst of judgment, God is still doing something. And what we saw is God's judgment creates new beginnings. Out of God's judgment, he, he gives a remnant of grace. Through these first nine chapters, we're seeing he gives a remnant of grace that there's somebody that he dispenses grace to. That in the midst of not deserving it, God is still acting in the world. So, I hope this week, um, Dave asked you last week that, that you would go ahead and read through the account here in Genesis. I hope you did that. I hope you read through the whole, the whole narrative as we went through chapters uh, 6, 7, 8, as you went through that whole thing, because there's a really cool thing that we're going to ask you to do this week, and that is to go back and read all of where we've been in Genesis so far. So begin back in Genesis 1, and one, and in particular, look at Genesis 1 through 3 and then Genesis 6 through 9. And to see the parallels that are there. It's pretty amazing. 
That as we come to this story of Noah and the flood, it isn't some just random God starting over kind of thing. That God is actually moving somewhere. And he's taking this story of the flood to go with, with starting over with creation. But he has no expectation that somehow we would work it out on our own. This isn't like God's going, hey, that didn't work out. Let's try again. Maybe Noah do better. In fact, we're going to see as we jump in here that that's explicitly not what it's about. So as you walk away this weekend, here's the big idea. God's fully committed to the world he created. So far in the book of Genesis, that's in doubt. Is he really committed? And what we're going to talk about is, yes, God is fully committed to the world he created. And that means as God's people, God is fully committed to us. And that means that if you have new life in Christ, God is fully committed to you. The world's broken, but God's commitment to you is not in doubt. So we're going to jump in in Genesis chapter 8, picking up in verse 20. Okay, they, they come off the boat. Um, God has actually done something really cool. So remember back in Genesis chapter 1 that, that we talked about how the world existed and, and the ancient Near East worldview is that the world existed in a state of chaos. That, that before there was creation, there was a state of chaos and, and, the, and the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites came in and said, hey, before the world existed, here's what happened. I existed and, and the spirit of God was over, hovering over the, the face of the deep. And so in the mind of a person from the ancient Near East, the the deep was scary. People who went out to sea didn't come back. And so in their worldview, it was a place of deep darkness. It was a place of great evil. It was a place of chaos. And what we saw in Genesis 1 was God took the chaos and he gave everything what? Form and function. He gave everything that existed purpose and meaning. God, God's creative activity was about ruling over those things that other people saw as scary. And nope, the God of the children of Israel, he made all of that and he gave it function. And then what? We see that, that as God brings judgment on the people for their utter sinfulness, the world returns to what? A big, watery state that, that it's, it's this picture of God going through recreation. There's a, there's a lot of debate about exactly how that works, but it's pretty profound as you read through and then you see the similarities of the story of the first man and woman through Genesis 1 through 3 and Noah's story as he goes through the flood and emerges here in chapter 8 into chapter 9. So in in verse 8, verse 20, as we pick up, it says, Then Noah does what? He built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, I will never, never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So notice, there's no no indication that God expects Noah to fix himself. The kids of Noah, the next generation, God has no expectation that somehow humanity will not be utterly corrupted. Why? He says they're brokenhearted people from the beginning. 
They have no hope of fixing themselves. From here we are in Genesis chapter 8, and God's already clear. You have no hope of fixing you. This is the best news. For, for us who know the whole story, the best news is you can't fix you. There's no expectation God has that you would. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on anything you do. Why? God says you're utterly broken at heart. Best news you could ever hear. You're utterly evil at heart. Get over you. That's the best news you could ever hear. Because God has also given the solution. And that's why it's so essential that we don't just read God's story in isolation as followers of Christ. Yes, we all all understand it in the original context and to the original audience. But as we're reading, we need to understand, whoa, he's given the solution. Because otherwise, right now, guess what? This is an utterly hopeless story. God knows you're broken. But what he has said is, I'm not going to send another flood. Never again will I destroy the world by a flood. I'm not going to do that. So picking up, here we go in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I'm going to give you a little clue. Hopefully you dig in. You read it yourself this week. You compare 1 through 3 and 6 through 9. And I'm going to give you a little starter here. This is one of the things you're looking for. You're looking for this pattern of God blessing and then this instruction because this is a direct parallel here. So be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God's instruction to the first man and one is he says, hey, I I made you. What's it say in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 beginning? And then through that little section right there, it says, and God blessed them. God blessed them and did what? God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that, that moves on the earth. And in that, we see that God has given humanity purpose, and that purpose remains. God hasn't changed. The purpose for humanity has remained from the very beginning that God has created humanity. God has created people that we would be about his stuff in this world, caring for his creation, caring for for it, and also enjoying it. That we would be a people who, who enjoy the good things that he has made. And now it's, it's Katie bar the door on all things, man. If you want to eat ants, have at it. If you want to eat pigs, have at it. That's going to get restricted later on. In other words, all things are for your enjoyment. All things God has made for you to join him in what he's doing in this world. And it's also clear that God cares for the people he created God cares for the people he created. 
He, he's, he's not just going, oh, well, I'm not really sure about people. No, it's clear from here that he really does care. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, all right, before we end. We're going to talk about God caring for the people he created in his image. God's story is bringing clarity, okay? God made it. God made it. God owns it. Keep your hands off of other people. Everything you learned, you learned in kindergarten. Everything you need to know, right? Everything you need to know, you learn in kindergarten. Keep your hands off other people. From from the very beginning, God is clear. Um, If I want to destroy a person, guess what? I get to do it. I get to do it. If you want to destroy a person, I will take your life. And we're like, whoa, that doesn't seem very right. God is clear. He absolutely values life. Now, I, I've heard it said this way. Okay, maybe you've heard it, uh, an analogy like, um, like a potter. Like if somebody's making a piece of pottery and they get to a certain point, they're like, oh, this doesn't work. They can just start over. And what's that called? Their prerogative. That's what that's called. It's called their, their option. They can do whatever you want. Now, I used to be a woodworker. And so I would make... Um, I, I wasn't great at it, but I, I would make, I made some coffee table, made some end tables. And so if I make an end table and, and I decide that I want to destroy that end table, guess what that's called? My prerogative. It's not evil. It's what I get to do. Why? I made it. I own it. It belongs to me. Now, when it comes to God, what have we learned? If, if we're bought in, and this is why this is huge as followers of Christ, if we're bought in that God made everything and everything belongs to him, and we believe what the New Testament says, that everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus, that means God gets to do whatever he wants to do, and our job is not to ever question his goodness. And yet we do, okay? I do it. But God's saying, I made it. And if I want to judge it, that's up to me. But you Keep your hands off. You are not me. You are not God. And so if you came into my house and you grabbed my end table and you took it into my yard and you smashed it in front of my house, guess what you'd be called? A criminal. You just committed a crime, right? You just destroyed property. First you did breaking and entering and then you you grabbed my stuff and you destroyed it. If I did that, that's a morally neutral thing. If you did it, it's called evil. And so we really need to buy into this. Our culture has not bought into this at all. And then last week, Dave talked about how how the the worldview that we have really matters. And if it's shaped from Genesis, from the very beginning, it's all about who is God and how do I fit into God's story? And even within the Christian churches across America, people are still getting the message all the time, every weekend, God is all about you. He's all about you, man. God's into you. God digs you, okay? This is my, this is my theme, man. He, he's so into you. Man, he's so into you. If you're the only person who ever lived, he would have died for you. That sounds amazing, but it's not true. Because why? Jesus died for the entire world, for humanity's sin, to, to, to solve this problem that we see here in the very beginning of God's story, that we're brokenhearted people who need a savior, not just me, but all of we. And this is incredible good news. 
that it's not just about me. And it's not that, that I would just, um, God would begin to me and my life would be great. Because guess what? When, when tragedy strikes, when stuff happens, all of a sudden I begin to question the goodness of God. But I understand that the world was created by him and anything that he does, he has the right to do because everything is, is by Jesus and for Jesus. All of a sudden I go, whoa, that's God's plan. That's God's thing. But if another person does it, that's different. And then as we pick up, got, got a, a story in verse 8, it says, Then God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So for the first time in God's story, we see the Hebrew word that we translate as covenant emerge. Now, now, people would say that, that the very first covenant that God makes is actually back in the garden with, with Adam and Eve, and it's not explicitly called a covenant, but we see the pattern of a covenant emerge where God says, hey, you get everything that's in the garden, but you can't eat of that one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's forbidden for you. And if you eat of it, there's going to be consequences. This would be the first covenant but this is this is the first time we see it formally called a covenant and and what we're going to see for the rest of God's story okay all the way to the very end of God's story is God's story is a covenant story as followers of Jesus today we really need to understand the concept of covenant it's really important why it's all the way through God's story and in fact um there's lots of different types. And so when there's a word that talks about a lot of different types of the same thing, it, like it uses one word to describe multiple things, that word covenant, it does that. So there's not just like one covenant, it's not just one thing. And another thing that's really hard for us is while we're probably familiar with that word covenant, there's nothing in our culture that's like it. We have contracts, okay? We have contracts. They're agreements between people. We, we, we make a contract, and, but that's, that's kind of sort of what a covenant is, but not really. And so I'm going to give you a definition, okay? This is just the basic definition. This is just the ground floor, that a covenant is an oath-bound promise whereby one party solemnly pledges to bless or serve another party in some specified way. It's an oath-bound promise that says, this is what I will do, this is what I won't do to, to bless or serve you in some way. Now, as we go through God's story, we're going to talk about a lot of different kinds of covenants that God has with his people, with individual people. We're going to talk about covenants that people have with each other. There's different kinds, but in particular, just in general, it's an oath-bound promise. And, and in the Old Testament, this word, this word likely derives from a concept that means to bind together. That two things become bound together, that, that they're, they're now joined in such a way, and when God is part of that covenant, it won't be separated. Because God is the initiator and the keeper of all covenants that he's given, and we're going to talk about that. Now, 
This, this is um, Noah saying that, that, hey, to you, and it's not just to Noah and his descendants, it's to all creation. God is saying, hey, there's an unconditional covenant that I'm going to give you, and that is I'm no longer ever going to return the world to chaos. The world has emerged out of the chaos, and it's never going back. Now, notice, he doesn't say I'm never going to destroy the earth. I'm never going to, again, bring my judgment. He doesn't say that at all. He just says, hey, it's not going back to the watery deep. I showed you already that there was no hope for humanity in that. It's not like, oh, if these were different people. If I had started with some different people, the story would have turned out different. What you're going to see is that, that as the people emerge, the same patterns, the same sin-based patterns emerge. So jumping in at verse 18, it says, the, the sons of Noah... It goes bizarre here. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth was dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and then all the years of his life were 950 years, and he died. What do we do with that? Here's our takeaway. Okay, what we're going to see is God's blessing persists along with humanity's sin. God's blessing persists. He's he's staying at it. He's keeping at it. The point of you is to be fruitful, multiply, do the stuff that I have for you to do in the world. That exists to this very day. God's plan for people is still be fruitful, be multiplying, fill the earth, do the stuff that I have for you to do in this world. And yet humanity's sin remains. God has not connected his blessing of people based on their performance or ability to avoid sin. Okay? It just hasn't. This is what I'm going to do. Now, in this story, some Bible scholars have some pretty colorful explanations of this story. And then they kind of go... um, too far, in, in my view, and, and a couple of the people that I really respect who, who talk about this. And I don't have time to cover all the views. So this week, instead of giving you multiple views and saying, pick one, I'm going to give you the view that I think. And that is the one that I believe is the most well-reasoned and the most well-supported well from a study. And that is that this isn't just talking about Noah in particular. And so throughout the Old Testament, in particular in, in ancient uh, culture, when, when it's talking about the nakedness of the man, it's talking about the intimacy that would happen between a man and a woman. And in particular, this is, this is the view that I believe was what happening here. And so they come off the boat, they, they, they celebrate and worship, they get drunk, and bam, 
Now his kids are going. Ham's like, whoa, I walked in on something I shouldn't have seen. And guess what? Nobody should ever see that. Nobody should ever see the intimacy between mom and dad. That's not something we should see. Nobody should see that. And so he walks out and he tells his brothers, man, you should go see this. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh, no. So what do they walk in? They walk in and they do the respectful thing. And so if we're just looking for the moral lesson here, it seems on the surface like it's just like, well, don't get drunk with wine. Move on. And in case any of you come from a background that anybody told you that that wine in the Bible, well, you know, when Jesus drank wine, it wasn't the kind of wine that gets you drunk. That's just dumb, okay? That's just dumb. Yes, it's, it's the wine that gets you drunk. From here at the beginning of Genesis to the days of Jesus, wine is wine. It's fermented drink made from grapes, and you still drink it to this day. And here in particular, okay, and, and I'm, not, I'm not advocating any way, shape, or form for either drinking wine or getting drunk when I say this, but the point of the story isn't don't get drunk like Noah. If you walk out of here with that, This whole thing went right over your head. The point of the story is, okay, wait. Now, it was foolish. It wasn't wise. It's not something he should have done. But the one who receives the judgment for being out of alignment with God is Ham, and even more so, his son, Canaan. Now, this seems bizarro. So Ham disrespects his parents, which the law is clear that that we're to honor our mother and father. So he dishonors his parents. And as a result, his kids get the punishment. And to us, this seems totally wrong and totally unfair. How in the world does he get that? And so what we see is this happening again in God's story of a godly line and an ungodly line emerge. And now here it's really important that we understand who this book was originally to. So historically, the first five books of the Bible are are credited to Moses. And and Moses, uh, as he recorded the first five books, um, who was the original audience? There were a group of people who had just been delivered out of Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, and they had a, a place that they were being sent. The place is called Canaan. It's a place of of the promised land. You've maybe heard it referred to. It's a place that God had promised he was going to give them. But there's these people in the land. They're called Canaanites. Where did they come from? So if God's instruction to the children of Israel was to enter Canaan, what did he say? Kill them all. Even the women and children, all of them. Because if you don't, they will corrupt you. So now, if you understand that the Canaanites are from the ungodly line, they're the people who are opposed to God, they're the people who are cursed by God, and God says, kill them all, you'd be like, okay, well, maybe I'm a little bit more open to that. Now, sometimes people take from this, and other places in the Old Testament, this concept of generational curse, and I'm going to go down this just for a second. And that is that it's an important reminder for us that generational sin, we remember this. There is such a thing as generational sin, but generational sin is based on habit and thought patterns. 
It's really important. If we're going to be new covenant followers of Jesus and not old covenant followers of Jesus, that we're not going to view these two things, that we don't take things like generational curses from the Old Testament, superimpose them in the New Testament, and then go, well, we still have that legacy of a generational curse that we see in the Old Testament. Why? Jesus breaks all curses. It's important you remember that. Jesus breaks all curses. But that doesn't mean there's not something called generational sin that is based on habit and thought patterns, that there's cycles of sin that go from person to person. And if a person isn't, um, isn't in Christ, then maybe there is generational sin. But for those who are in Christ, they, they have gone from old to new, and their new life in Christ means you no longer have a generational curse on you. Okay, it's important you buy into that because you're going to get, I'd say, you know, not a lot, but Christians are going to tell you, yep, that's a generational curse. You got it. No, we do not believe in superstition. We do not believe that anything isn't covered by the blood of Christ. He's enough to cover all of that. But it's also really, really important that we understand we're shaped by all the inputs around us, all of them. And we've talked already in this series. All the inputs come in, right? All the stuff that we take in, and it shapes how we think and what we do. It shapes um, the, the things that we think are okay, the things that were not okay. That, that, that changes kind of how we think. Not kind of, it definitely does. And we, we also see that, that there's an important clarification that God gives in his story, and that that's God's value for humanity is clarified. God's value for humanity, he says to me, don't take a life. Don't do that. Man, it couldn't be any more time. A couple of weeks ago, I actually said the word abortion. And then uh, this week, the, all of a sudden, the Supreme Court a decision gets leaked. It's all you see on your news feed talking about the reality of a Supreme Court possibly overturning Roe v. Wade. And it's like, wow, this is at the front of our world. Here we are once again. And so it's really important that, that we would understand at, at the core, God is a God of life. Okay, and I'm not getting political when I say this. God has got a life. In fact, we spent a year and a half going through the Gospel of John. You remember this? Okay, two years, a year and a half through the Gospel of John. And if we want to summarize the Gospel of John in one word, that one word, I'll give you a chance to play. That one word is life. The Gospel of John is all about life. And I remember during that, there was political stuff going on, and we had people come, and we'd question and be like, you don't take a strong enough stand on, on abortion and whether or not you're, you're for or against it. And I'm like, man, we spent a year and a half talking about the God of the Bible is a God about life. And somehow our culture has taken the blessing of God to be really smart and do amazing things. And, and they now think that it's their job to, to control who's born and not born or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe as a follower of Jesus, you can argue it from some source other than scripture. But, but, but we cannot advocate for anything other than life. Why? Because God's all about it. He's all about life. And I can't argue that God's all about new life if a person doesn't even have life to begin with. God's all about life. So let's take a different hot button topic. Let's talk about euthanasia. Guess where we're going to land on that one? 
Let's talk about physician-assisted suicide. Seems mind-blowing. We're doing some research. We're in a, a licensing class doing some research. We're learning about like suicide pods in Sweden. We're like, whoa, you can get a pod. You can, you can commit suicide in it, and they'll just bury it in the ground. This sounds totally enlightened. And to me, it's, what are we doing? Life is valuable. God made us to be people of life. And so I'm not saying that, that I might not get down the road and I get a diagnosis and, and I'm towards the end and I'm suffering, that I might not be calling up my doctor and be like, hey, Dr. Collins, man, I, I really need something. Can you give me something? I'm not saying that because I, 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 I'm not tough. I, I, I'm not saying that I won't opt out, but I will say this. God's all about life. He's all about life. And so as his followers, guess what we have to advocate for? Life in every circumstance to every person. Why? That they would experience new life in Christ, and they can't do that without life to begin with. That's our job. God is clear from the very beginning of the story. I made it. Keep your hands off it. I'm for it. And then as we move into the New Testament, we see that that God is absolutely clear that this covenant language is so important. It's about his relationship with us. Throughout, like I said, we're going to view this all throughout God's story, but there's a prophet by the name of Jeremiah that God gave these words to. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant what I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. As we come to the end of this story in Noah, really the so what? Like how do we, what do we walk away with? And we go, okay, wait, the fact that, that God's fully committed to the world he created, how does that impact me? Well, Jesus is proof that God is fully committed to us. If we have new life in Christ, Jesus is proof that God is fully committed to us. Why? He is the one who brought the new and better covenant into our world. He is the one who is going to give us a solution to the very beginning problem, which is we're utterly broken at heart with no hope of fixing ourselves. It's only Jesus through this new covenant. As he was getting ready to depart, he had um, the Passover dinner with with his followers, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's a new day. There's a new thing. There's a new opportunity, and that is that there's a new covenant that I have established with my people, that my people will have new life in Christ. And Jesus is proof that he's fully committed to us. And that means God's fully committed to you. You're in us. So no matter where you find yourself, Jesus is proof that he's not giving up on you, that he's for you, that, that he's in it with you. And so what do you do this week as, as we walk into this week? You know, if we, if we just walk into a week and we have a little bit more information, guess what we call that? 
worthless. That's worth nothing. If you just walk out and you get a little bit more information, that's worthless. What do we take with what we've learned and then put into application in our world? And so this week, you know what? It's Mother's Day. Let's not make it more complicated than celebrate your mom today. Moms, whatever that looks like in your world, celebrate them in some way, shape, or form. Alive, whether they passed away, whether, whether whatever that looks like in your world, celebrate the reality of the God who created a world with, with parents that were to honor in, 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 in our lives, okay? That's step one. But as you jump into Monday, start each day of the week asking this, Jesus, how can I honor my covenant with you today? Not just asking the question, but then moving towards application. When you ask that question, okay, how do I honor my covenant with you today? In other words, how do I honor the fact, Jesus, that you are fully committed to me? How do I be fully committed to you today? Jesus, your agreement that you've given me new life and you're never going to take it away, that agreement, how do I live that out in reality today and then do it? Or just be open to it, that you would start your day with that question in mind going, okay, as life comes at me today, how do I fully honor Jesus' commitment to me by demonstrating that commitment in the lives of others? And then last, who needs to know that Jesus is proof of God's commitment to them? Who needs to know? We've been talking about three by five. Okay, three by five, that, that there's three to five people that you're praying for that they would know Jesus, that they would understand that, that God's fully committed to them. And Jesus is proof that God is fully committed to them. Who are those people? And you may have them already. If you don't, okay, one thing, if you're new, we, we ha- just take a three by five card, index card, and ask God for three to five people that you would write. And then you begin to pray for those people. Now, here's the thing. We're starting to hear stories of people who are like, hey, I'm praying for these people on my three by five, and here's what God is doing. And it's really, really encouraging. Many of them are in the process, so we can't stand up here and tell you the story. They're, they're happening. The stories are happening. And so that's really, really cool. But, but one of the things that's happening in my world is it seems hopeless. Some other sad people, it's like, this is hopeless. Man, my people are further from Jesus now than they were. This seems hopeless. And now, this is theory, okay? This is just my theory. I don't know this. But my theory is, like, if I was standing up here and I was able to tell you, hey, I have this three-by-five card and all five people have come to know Jesus, you'd be like, of course, you work for Jesus. You have, like, a full-time gig with Jesus. Yeah, he's going to do that, but what about me? And so it's like desert. But, man, I'm starting to hear your stories. And so one of the things that we can do to encourage each other is share the stories. As you're seeing just glimmers of hope, you'd be like, okay, let me tell. Like, yeah, he's on the move, and I see him working in these lives. Because guess what? It's not going away. Three by five isn't just something that we're leaving in this year. As we go into the next ministry year, and we're excited to talk about that coming up this summer. As we go into 22 and 23, three by five isn't going away. Why? Because we think it's just what we're called to be. As being gospel-centered people, we should always have three to five people that we're praying for that, that would know Jesus and that we would then not just pray that, but then, okay, what's my part, God? What's my part? What's my part? But right now, here's what we're going to do. The God that we talked about today and the God who's committed to us is a God who's worthy of our worship. So everywhere, online, okay, maybe you're not going to jump to your feet, but everywhere else, I'm going to ask you, jump to your feet, okay? Jump to your feet. Let's go. It's time to worship. It's time to worship the God who's committed to us. And so no matter what venue you're in, let's pour out our hearts in worship. God, we need your help right now. Would your spirit well up within us and help we worship? We ask in Jesus' name.
Thank you.